0: Well, our sermon text today comes from Matthew chapter 21. In your pew Bible, that is page 826. Matthew 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphag, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, you have recorded these things so that we would would know that your son Jesus is our king. Lord, I pray that anyone in here right now for whom Jesus is not their king would, would understand what you've got for us today in Matthew. They would hear it. They'd be... Convicted of their rebellion against King Jesus. They repent and believe. Come into his kingdom. Lord, I pray for those of us who already identify as Jesus' kingdom citizens. Lord, help us to better understand who our king is. You glorify Jesus, our Christ, in his word. Give us understanding. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, way back at the beginning of our study in Matthew, we began to wrestle with this, this question together. Some of you weren't here yet, many of you were. And that that question was this Who is Jesus? And we've actually asked this question uh, uh, quite a few times as we've studied the Gospel of Matthew. And we have come to the conclusion that everyone, everywhere, at all times, has had to answer this question, who is Jesus? And you have to answer this question rightly. The right answer to this question leads to right worship and right living, and ultimately it leads to eternal life. And the wrong answer to this question leads to hell. So who is Jesus? And Matthew has been answering that question for us throughout the gospel. All the way back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he showed us that Jesus is the one who descends from Abraham. And he is the one who descends from David. And the promise to his mother Mary was that this one would be the one who would save his people from their sins. In chapter 2, this Jesus was the mysterious king that the wise men from the east were told about through the stars. And he was the infantile king that terrified the tyrant, Herod. In chapter 3 of Matthew, he was the the man anointed by the Spirit and the one of whom God said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 4, he was the new Adam, the one who withstood the temptation of the serpent. And he was the righteous one. Of Israel, who in the wilderness was trusting in the Lord. In chapter 8, Matthew showed us through these fulfillment passages. He is the servant of the Lord who bears our griefs and sorrows. And then in chapter 12, we got more fulfillment passages. He is the servant of the Lord in chapter 12, who filled with the Spirit proclaims justice to the Gentiles. And then the last time that we saw a this was to fulfill passage, In Matthew's gospel, answering who Jesus is, was chapter 13, where Jesus was the one with the wisdom of God, who uncovers the mysteries of God. And over and over and over again, in all of these chapters in Matthew, he kept saying, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. And he's showing us, he was doing in his writing, what he was doing for us was giving us evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And all of that was based on Old Testament prophecies. All of that was based on expectations of of who the Old Testament writer said Messiah would be. And all throughout this time, uh, beginning, at the beginning and, and going throughout Matthew, we have seen that he's this great teacher as well. And he shows us what true righteousness is in the heavenly kingdom, and he shows his followers that he's the promised king. And through miracle after miracle, he's fulfilling the promises of the new creation kingdom. And he's teaching his followers what it means to follow him, what it means to live in that kingdom. And that question kept coming up again and again from his disciples and from people in Galilee and from people out beyond there. Who is he? Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus from Nazareth? He was teaching as one with authority. If you remember that in in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he has the wisdom of God. And we remember, we saw that the wind and the waves obeyed him. The blind and the mute and the lame are healed by him. The demons are terrified by him. Sickness and death don't stand a chance against him. But then, he doesn't have a home. He eats with sinners. His disciples are a bunch of ragtag Galilean fishermen and tax collectors and political rabble-rousers. The great prophet John the Baptist and his disciples, they're not so sure about who Jesus is. The theologians and the religious leaders all think he's a fraud and a sinner. And to top it off, he keeps repeating this message, and we've been seeing this the past few weeks. He keeps telling his followers he's going to die, and if they follow him, they're going to die too. So who is Jesus? He has the power of God, the righteousness of God, the wisdom of God. He's the divine bringer of the heavenly kingdom, and yet he's humble, he's lowly, by the world's standards, he's he's weak, and he's undoubtedly human. For the remainder of Matthew's gospel, beginning with our text this morning, Matthew forces us to reckon with with those dual realities. Jesus is Messiah, but he is not the Messiah that the Jews expected. Rather, he is the Messiah that the prophets told us was coming. The one who would be killed by his people for his people, and then the one who would be raised. And the way this comes out most clearly in our text this morning is in the way that Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. So let me set the stage for you. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee some 80 miles ago. All right, We don't really know how much time has passed, but we know that it's about 80 miles if you go through Jericho the way that they did. And that's a really long walk. And in the last 15 miles of this walk from Jericho up to Jerusalem, that's a 3,000-foot. Elevation, climb, increase. And the entire time from Galilee to Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples and then all the people who are following them, they've all been walking on foot, right? So Jesus has been on foot this entire time. But here in our text this morning, he's a mile outside of Jerusalem in a little suburb of a village known as Bethphage or House of Figs, and Jesus stops walking. He's done. He will not continue his journey. He will not take one step further on foot. And the way that John tells the story, if you read John's Gospel, this confused the disciples. It's like, well, you know, we we walked eighty miles. What's one more? And at that time, they didn't understand why Jesus insisted on riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they didn't understand it until much, much later when the Spirit began to reveal to them how everything that Jesus did, even the way that he goes into the holy city, everything he did pointed to the fact that he is Messiah. Messiah. That's why in our text in verse 4, Matthew, who's one of those disciples whom the Spirit revealed these things to, when he records this, he says this took place in order to fulfill what was written by the prophet. So, one thing I want to make sure that we do is look at some of this fulfillment. Why, Jesus? Why, Why do you insist riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? You could have walked. You could have written something else. So why does he do this? I want to make sure that we understand what Jesus is doing because it's recorded in all four Gospels and it's really important. The first thing that we need to pay attention to here is location. All right, Location is always, always important in the Gospels and really in the rest of the Bible as well. Messiah, if you remember, he had to be born in Bethlehem. And so he was. He had to flee to Egypt, and so his family fled to Egypt. He had to move to Galilee, and so his family moved to Galilee. And he had to die just outside of Jerusalem, and that took place. He had to be buried in a rich man's tomb, and that's how that happened. Location, location, location. It's all really important in the Gospels. Location is extremely important. And anytime time a location is named, we should be looking for its significance. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus stops at the Mount of Olives right before he goes into Jerusalem. Now, this is really significant. Why? Well, this has a lot to do with King David. Remember how Jesus is the son of David, the the promised Messiah who would come from David's line? Well, this is an echo of something that happened in King David's life. King David was the, the great and mighty anointed king of Israel. He is the one to whom God promised, from your line, there will always be a king on your throne. The one whose lineage, the Messiah, was to come through. And here's how David and the Mount of Olives are connected. All right, so if you're wondering, this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 15, but really you need to read 2 Samuel 10 through like 18 to really get it. But in 2 Samuel 15, uh, there's this point in David's tenure as king of Israel when his son Absalom initiated a coup to overtake the throne in Jerusalem. And so David's fleeing Jerusalem. He runs away. He doesn't have his army with him. And so if he stays in Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. So he leaves. He's afraid for his life. And as he's leaving Jerusalem, he's barefoot. He, he covers his head. And all of his entourage are covered, covering their heads and they go up where? Well, the Mount of Olives. This is a time of mourning. He's weeping as he looks back over Jerusalem from up there on the Mount of Olives. And it's at this time that a family friend of David's brings him two donkeys. And as he leaves the Mount of Olives, and he goes down further away from Jerusalem, there's a guy yelling at him, and he's throwing rocks at him, and David just takes it. He doesn't fight back. The point here, what Matthew is bringing to our Bible memories, is that the association of Israel's anointed king and riding on donkeys and the Mount of Olives is not a Bible story about victory. It's not triumphant. This is a time that for King David feels like defeat. So, Jesus then, fast forward, Jesus then, beginning on the Mount of Olives and intending to ride into Jerusalem on two donkeys, is bringing that memory back. He is the Davidic king who has the rightful claim to the throne. But this is not a triumphal entry. This is the entry that has the same tone to it as David's exit. This entry into Jerusalem is like going back into the place where Absalom, the enemy, has won over the hearts of the people. He's going to a place where the people do not have allegiance to the anointed king. And as Jesus has told us already three times, this is a suicide mission. He's going in. To what will be his death. So do you see the fulfillment? Really clear. The second fulfillment has to do with this Old Testament prophecy. This one's one's easier because he says. He quotes scripture directly. Second fulfillment has to do with uh, this combination of Zechariah. And in Isaiah 62. Look at verse 5 of our text. Matthew 21 verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, or some translations would translate that as afflicted, humble or afflicted, a mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the bulk of this comes from Zechariah chapter 9. You, you heard this when Christian read this for us. And Zechariah 9.9 9 says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's almost verbatim, isn't it? The only difference is that little phrase, say to the daughter of Zion part. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 62. And we'll we'll look at that in in just a minute. But what, what Matthew was doing for us here, In taking these two different messianic prophecies and and pushing them together, he's showing us, rather, the Spirit is showing us, that Zechariah and Isaiah were pointing to the same event when they were writing. And in this event, there was to be this one big idea that we have to see the prophets pointing to. And this is it it's a sign. When the king comes in humility, it is a sign to you that he is bringing salvation. When the king comes in humility, he's bringing salvation. Let me say that again, because this is key to understanding what's going on here. When the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king, when he comes in humility on a donkey, really clear prophecy, we are to understand that that is the time when he's bringing salvation to his people. Triumphant. Powerful kings do not enter into cities on donkeys. You understand this. You understand this better than you realize. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that we had a presidential inauguration last Wednesday. Our president is not a king. He was elected, or so they say. And that was the moment when Del Cero's Facebook and Instagram and Livestream accounts got shut down. <laughs> the, the point is, President Biden is not a king. Uh, oh, Siri's listening? Oh, no. <laughs> Siri says I didn't get that. <laughs> okay. Point is, President Biden is not a king, but he is an important ruler. I and mean, We all understand that. And if he had showed up to the inauguration on Wednesday riding on a little gray donkey that he borrowed from some Virginia peanut farmer, and if Hillary and Kamala had thrown their power blazers on the donkey so Joe could use them as a saddle, you would think this was some sort of a joke, right? It's a a parody of the presidency. And we we would be the laughingstock of the nations. This This is their ruler? He's on a donkey. Presidents do not ride into inaugurations on donkeys. They they come in on on jets. They come in helicopters, war machines. And big time triumphant kings don't come into the Capitol on donkeys either. They ride horses, war horses. And they come in with armies behind them. But that's not the way that Jesus... Comes into Jerusalem, not yet. One day he will. When we get to Revelation 19, Jesus' second coming, that's when he'll ride in on a white horse with a rod of iron and a sharp sword, and his robe will be dipped in blood, and he'll have enormous armies of heaven behind him. And they'll be riding on war horses too. That will be the triumphal entry of King Jesus. And that day is coming, but that day is not here yet not in Matthew 21. Right now, we know Jesus only as the humble king. That's all we've been shown. He's the one who would suffer, the one who will die for us, the one who is more like the barefoot rejected King David, who someone else has to provide pack animals for just so this king who rushed out of the city in in, in haste would have something to ride on as he leaves. And the reason why Zechariah is important here is that this prophecy from Zechariah fits how Messiah would come at some point. When when Christian read for us, Zechariah 9, I'm not sure if you noticed it, but there was this tension in the way that Zechariah prophesied this, this day of salvation that would come. To flip back over to Zechariah 9 for a moment, I want you to see this for yourself. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want you to see the tension in this chapter. In verses 1 through 8 of Zechariah chapter 9, you get very much what seems like a promise of justice that is coming to God's people. I don't know if you, if you caught that, that. The Lord is going to avenge Israel. He's going to punish Israel's enemies. Any of enemy, Israel's enemies who are strong and great and rich and powerful at this time get crushed in those passages. And in, in, in verse 8, the Lord will camp at his house as a guard and never again will Israel be oppressed. And you hear that language and it sounds triumphant, doesn't it? It sounds like battles and, and strength. And power, it actually sounds a lot like Revelation 19 language. And then verses 13 of Zechariah 9 to the end of that chapter are really similar. The Lord is going to use his people as as a bow and, and an arrow, and then there's lightning coming from the sky that is like an arrow. It's battle language. It's triumphant king language. But then you have... This little passage in the middle of Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 12. And they seem kind of out of place. In Zechariah 9, 9, the king who will one day bring judgment, he comes in on a donkey. In humility. And he brings salvation. And if you keep going, you look at verse 10. Zechariah nine ten. The Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The chariot is a a war machine. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So how how is he humbly coming to bring salvation and peace in verses 9 and 10, and yet the whole rest of the chapter is judgment and conquering. What Matthew's doing for us here, by referencing this chapter, is showing us that even the prophets understood that there would be a time when Messiah would come in meekness with an announcement of peace and salvation, and there would be a time when he would bring war. Messiah wasn't supposed to just come once, but twice. And Jesus in Matthew 21 is fulfilling the humble arrival of Messiah. And the humility of his arrival signals to us that this is also a time of peace. This is a time of peace. Peace for who? Look look at verse 10 again. Peace for Israel. Peace for the nations. And this, this peace is between the people and God. This is the time when Messiah restores Israel to peace with God and when the nations would also be given peace with God through Messiah. Do you see what Matthew's doing here? This is that time. I told you Isaiah is also being used here. The difference here is that Zechariah does not say, say to the daughter of Zion. That's not in Zechariah 9. That comes from Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62, 11. So this is the combination of the verses coming together in Matthew 21. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, there's that language. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. So there it is. What are we to see? When Messiah comes in on a donkey... He's bringing salvation. That's what Matthew wants us to see. When you see him come in humility, this is the signal. Jesus is coming into the city for this one purpose. This is what he's doing, to die and bring salvation. And not just for Israel, but for the nations. What that also tells us because we have this echo of Zechariah 9 ringing in our ears, it tells us that the rest of Zechariah 9 will one day be fulfilled. The rest of Zechariah 9 will be fulfilled. And, and, and when he comes again, when that fulfillment happens, it won't be on a donkey, but on a white horse. And when you see him on that horse, it's a sign that the time of peace is over. The time of patience is over. The offering of salvation has ended. Jesus on a horse means he's bringing judgment and vengeance on God's enemies. So listen, if if you are not a follower of King Jesus right now, let me ask you, which Jesus do you want to meet? Which one do you want to meet? Right now, we're living in a time between the arrivals of this king. The first time he came, he came to bring you salvation. When he comes again, he's bringing judgment. Behold, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the time of salvation for you. Now is the time when this king is saying to you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's our king right now, humble and riding on a donkey, bringing rest to his people. Come to Jesus today. Come and receive him as the gentle and lowly king. You're not promised tomorrow. And if you're wondering, okay, well, I will. How do I submit to him as king? I want to. Well, you do it by trusting that what he's done for you covers your sin. And you repent of your rebellion. You repent of your unbelief, repentance, and trust. That's what it means to be a follower of him. You faithfully follow him. And empowered by his spirit, you live in obedience to him. And and emboldened by his spirit, you worship him as king. Before we move on to what the crowds are doing in Matthew 21, I want to show you one more thing about these donkeys, okay? There's another point of tension in chapter 21 at the beginning here that we have to wrestle with to answer that question, who is Jesus? When Jesus sent his two disciples into the village to get the donkey and her colt, look at what he tells them in verse 3. He says, you're supposed to, if they ask you, you're supposed to tell them, the Lord needs them. And and when Jesus says to tell the owner this, the owner is to understand that Yahweh, the Lord, God, needs the animals. But think about that. The Lord, God, how can he need anything? God has no needs. That's what it means that he's God. And yet as plain as day, the Lord needs a donkey and her colt. This is another reminder to us from Matthew that Jesus is the Lord. He's the God over all, God over everything. He is the one through whom everything is created. He owns the cattle and the donkeys on a thousand hillsides. And he owns the rest of creation. And he could have summoned, just with a whistle, 10,000 of the strongest war horses from all over the region to come and meet him there outside of Jerusalem. That's who he is as God. He has no needs. But he's also, remember, he's also the homeless man who has nothing to his name except the clothes on his back. And so he requires the charity of others. He needs the charity of others. In order to catch a ride into town. He's the great and, and mighty promised king. Who in the, in the world's eyes. Looks weak and lowly. And like an impoverished guy. He's the great and mighty God. But at the same time he is a man. This is who Jesus is. We need to see that. As he. Makes his way into Jerusalem because we need to understand the tension of a king who will die on a cross. And if we don't understand that, then it will be foolishness to us and we'll never, ever quite be able to grasp what it means to worship him. Well, in verses six through eight, the disciples go into presumably Beth Bethphag, the, the, the nearby village, they find the donkey and her colt exactly as Jesus said they would. They put their cloaks on the animals. They bring them back to Jesus. He gets on the colt, the one that's never been ridden before, if we read it in Mark, and he rides into Jerusalem on this little animal who's with its mama. And Matthew says this fulfills more of what the Old Testament spoke of regarding Messiah. And we saw that. We saw in 2 Samuel. This fulfills this King David echo, and we saw it in Isaiah, and we saw it in Zechariah, this humble king bringing salvation. And I didn't mention this, but this is also echoing Jacob's blessing to his son Judah in Genesis chapter 49. This is kind of a, a side comment, but it's neat, and so you need to see it. Uh, in, in Genesis 49, 11, the Messiah who comes from Judah's line, Judah is one of uh, the 12 sons of Israel, of Jacob. And the Messiah who comes from Judah's line is associated with this tied up cult, the foal of a donkey. There's a whole lot of promise being fulfilled here in these verses, isn't there? But it's not just the riding on a donkey coming down from the Mount of Olives that Matthew says is fulfilling prophecies. Of Messiah's arrival. It's it's also the crowds that are following him in what they say. So to give you some some more context here, uh, you have this large crowd that has come down from the north, from Galilee. They're making their way into Jerusalem to the temple for Passover. Uh, during, during that time, Jerusalem normally had like 30,000 people living in the city. During Passover, you had 180,000 people in Jerusalem. So it's kind of overflowed with people because they're coming down from all over. The Galilee crowd is following Jesus. And we don't really know what their motivations are. Uh, We know that that they know that he's one of their own. We know that they know that he's a famous miracle worker. They're they're proud of him. And so they're following him into Jerusalem. Matthew says in verses 8 and 9 that many of these people are out in front of Jesus So you have the Galileans, they're out in front of Jesus and lots of them are throwing their cloaks in the road and many of them are cutting branches down uh, out of the trees and I think it's palm branches. I can't imagine any other branch that would make the road smooth. Uh, I think if there were sycamore branches or oak branches, this would be a disaster. Uh, But John tells us that it is palm branches and, and so that's what's going on there. They're they're smoothing the road for the king. This is red carpet, makeshift red carpet treatment for for King Jesus. And then you have the people behind him and they're singing and they're shouting and there's an enormous crowd front and back and they're all saying the same thing. They're quoting Psalm 118, verse 25. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of of David. Now, Hosanna is a word of praise in Hebrew. In In your Bible... Uh, And In in the ESV that we have on the screen, Psalm 118 is is translated, the word Hosanna is translated for us, and it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. That, That word is just Hosanna. So when these people are shouting, they're shouting, save us, Lord, son of David. We already saw that salvation was coming when he comes in on the donkey and the people seem to know this. They've got good theology. They know their Bibles, and they're saying, save us, Lord, son of David. And then they continue with this psalm of praise, and they, and they get to Psalm one, eighteen, twenty-six. 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, there's that word again, Hosanna, the Lord saves in the highest. So to translate this, they're saying, Jesus is the king who comes in the Lord's name. He bears Yahweh's name, and then that at the end, God save in the highest. That's a prayer that God would bring total restoration. These people aren't just praying for their own salvation. They, they recognize that Messiah brings salvation to the nations. The restoration of all things. He saves to the highest. He saves to the max. This is a momentous occasion. It's the biggest, most important public event in Jesus' life up to this point. All of these people singing this song of the Lord's arrival and the salvation that he brings over and over and over again as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. Matthew says the entire city was shaken by what was happening. Look at verse 10. The entire city was stirred up. There are three times In Matthew's gospel, when this city, Jerusalem, was stirred up or shaken by Jesus. The first was way back in chapter 2. That was when those wise men came in to talk to Herod because they had seen in the stars that a king was being born. And I believe they understood that it was the king of all creation. And Matthew tells us in chapter 2. Herod was troubled by this news, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and all these Galileans are coming into the city, causing this enormous ruckus, and the city is shaken again, stirred up, troubled by the revival of Jesus. When Jesus is crucified, Jerusalem will be shaken again, only this time it won't be the people, but the earth itself. That shakes. The significance here is that Jesus' birth and his being praised as king by these people and his death are all agitating announcements. They're, they're troubling. Troubling to the world. These are all events that change the course of the normal day for all of these people. As Christians, we, we already know this about his birth. Right? We go all out on Christmas. And we recognize that his death is a big deal, too. We, we come to church on a Friday to celebrate this. But I don't think we understand deeply enough how radical it is to say or to sing with these Galilean crowds that Jesus is king and to praise him as king. Palm Sunday usually gets kind of a nod from us, doesn't it? It's the, you know It begins Holy Week. The day when you maybe start dressing up a little bit nicer for church. It's, it's more of a precursor to Good Friday and Easter and Mother's Day, though, isn't it? But friends, worshiping Jesus as our King is what it means to be a Christian. We, we often mistake Christianity for simply the belief in God or the belief that there was a man named Jesus who died. And you can't have Christianity without the belief in God and, and the belief in a man named Jesus who died. But, but the essence of our faith is not mere belief in God or mere belief in the historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. Those are indisputable facts, and those things don't save you. The essence of our faith is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the king of the new creation kingdom that we belong to. So when, when early Christians, when they said, Jesus is Lord, when they sang the song of the Galileans, it wasn't just an empty ritual for them. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a re- just a repeated statement, Jesus is Lord, amen. Now, this was a repudiation of the statement. Caesar is Lord. And that Caesar is Lord phrase was one that is required by everybody in the empire. And the Christians wouldn't say it. They proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. The the, the proclamation of early Christians that Jesus is king was an act of sedition, rebellion against the, the rulers of the world. And it was a commitment that brought consequences in their lives. Is that who you understand Jesus to be? Is he your king? Is your allegiance to him higher than your allegiance to your nation? Is your allegiance to him higher than your allegiance to your family? Does worshiping Jesus as king take priority over your health? Does it take priority over what people think about you? Is your allegiance to Jesus as king higher than your allegiance to yourself? That's what this is asking us. That's what Matthew wants us to see. We must ask and we must answer. Because this is the allegiance that the king of the new creation demands. Ultimate allegiance. It's what it means to follow him. It's what it means to be a Christian. Last week we saw That our continual prayer as Christians is to be the prayer of those blind men on the side of the road. Lord, have mercy on me. And this week, what do we see? Our continual song as Christians. The Lord saves. The Lord does have mercy. Jesus, the Messiah, saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord saves in the highest. He saves even me. And we sing that song here and we sing it in the way that we live and we sing it with the the priorities that we set in our lives and the decisions that we make every day that prove to the world around us that Jesus is our king. That our allegiance is to him. Because we know in our heart of hearts that Jesus is the king who saved us. And that's what faith is. But here's the thing that we need to see. Proclaiming our allegiance to King Jesus causes a ruckus. It it leads others to say, like these people in Jerusalem, who is this? The singing, the praise of Jesus' followers caused the city to be shaken, and they asked, who is this? Who are these people praising? Who are they worshiping? What are these people carrying on about? And so I want to ask you, is there enough difference between you and the world for anyone to ask that question of you? What's she carrying on about? Would anyone ever ask that about you? Who is he always talking about? Would anyone ever ask that about you? Is your allegiance to King Jesus visible? Is it palpable? Church, Jesus is our humble Savior King who reconciles us to God. Amen? So let's let our entire lives be witness that we serve him. As we're finishing, I want to, want you to see this. There's two different groups of people here. We've kind of talked about this already. Matthew makes it really clear for us. There's one crowd coming into the city with Jesus, praising Jesus, and he's in the middle of them. And then there's another crowd in the city, in Jerusalem. And they're wondering what all the fuss is all about. Let me be clear, because it's clear in the text. The people in Jerusalem are not praising Jesus. Their loyalty, metaphorically, is to Absalom. Sometimes we think that the same people singing Hosanna on Palm Sunday are the ones calling for his crucifixion on Good Friday. That's not necessarily the case. There there may be a few of these people for whom that's true, but it's definitely not what Matthew is trying to show us here. What what we are to see is that Jerusalem, the city of the temple, the, the place that is supposed to be the most holy place in all the world, because it's the place of God's dwelling, the people of this city don't recognize God when he shows up. They don't recognize Messiah. They're asking, who is this? Matthew showed us in verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. But the people of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, they don't receive him. Jesus, the son of God, the promised son of David, goes into Zion, and the people don't recognize him. He is, after all, riding on the donkey. He doesn't look like the king they're expecting. And that is the great irony of what's happening here. Messiah has arrived. And he has arrived not to bring war against the Romans or judgment on the nations as the people were expecting, but he's bringing salvation to them, to all of them. True salvation to any who would follow him. So who is he? Who is Jesus? He's not the king we expected. He's the king that we need, isn't he? He's the king that we all need because he must first die as the humble king before he can come as the triumphant king. Let's praise him. Jesus in heaven, we praise you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have offered us peace and that you have given us faith to receive it. We thank you for your grace. Thank you that though we deserved your judgment, you have given us mercy, given us trust in you, you've given us peace with God. You've given these things to us without our work, despite our work. So thank you, Lord. Praise you, in Christ's name.